My sermon today is called Siblings in Christ. How many people here grew up with a sibling? Many. I grew up with one sibling. I have an older sister. Her name is Virginia. She's three years older than me. And I'm going to tell you a couple stories about Virginia, and then after worship, I would love to hear if these stories reminded you of growing up with your own siblings. I want to hear your stories, too. When Virginia and I were little, she would say things like, oh, I really need my hairbrush from my room. Will you go get it for me? And I would say, no, absolutely not. And then she would say, I bet you can't go get it and be back in 10 seconds. And I would say, I bet I can go get it and be back in nine seconds. And that's how Virginia got pretty much anything she wanted from around the house for like three to five years. Virginia and I would also do this funny thing where our parents would put us to bed in our separate bedrooms, and then I would wait and listen for my parents to go back downstairs, and then I would get up, and I would slowly creep out of my room, and I would slowly open my bedroom door. My bedroom door was very squeaky, so I knew exactly how fast I could open it without it squeaking. And then I would sneak into Virginia's room, and I would sit on her bed, and we would talk, and we would giggle for what felt like hours and hours and hours, and it was probably 30 minutes until I was too tired, and then I would go back into my room. And in classic big sister, little sister nature, she would never come into my room. She was always the one cozy in bed, and I was always the one that would do the sneaking in. And therefore, I was the, always the one that got a talking to from our parents for being out of bed. Virginia and I were pretty inseparable as kids. We hit a bit of a rough patch when we were teenagers, when we fought a lot over clothes. And we also fought a lot over the one landline, when you had the landline that was also the internet. There was a lot of, you've been on the internet this whole time, I've been waiting for this call. That really did this for our relationship. Um, but other than that, Virginia and I have been close our whole life, lives, and we're still close now, even though she lives out in California. Again, I would love to hear your stories about your siblings or cousins or close childhood friends growing up. Maybe like me, you had one sibling, maybe you had many, maybe you were the one that timed your siblings to go get your stuff in nine seconds, or maybe you didn't have siblings at all growing up, and that's okay. Because I'm here to tell you that all of us actually have thousands and thousands of siblings. Here's what I mean. A.J. Jacobs wrote a book called It's All Relative, in which he talks about the ways that biologically we are all members of one family tree. It all started when A.J. received an email from a man in Israel who had read one of A.J.'s books. A.J. Jacobs wrote The Year of Living Biblically and a couple of other uh, books as well. The email said, you don't know me, but I'm your 12th cousin. I have a family tree with 80,000 people on it, including you, Karl Marx, and several European aristocrats. AJ's first thought was, surely this guy's about to ask me for money. <laughs> and his second thought was, even if this is true, do I even want 80,000 family members? That's a lot of people to drive to the airport. <laughs> but this distant cousin wasn't seeking any help. He was reaching out to let AJ know of a project called the World Family Tree. Right now, more people than ever are doing DNA tests on things like 23andMe. They're researching and uploading their family trees onto sites like Ancestry.com. And the World Family Tree seeks to combine all of this data and compile one giant family tree that shows the ways that all of us are interconnected. 
Already, the World Family Tree has connected over 175 million people around the world and across history. So in AJ's book about this, he, he talks about diving in and learning about all the ways that we are related. So for example, he found out that his fifth great aunt's husband's father's wife's seventh great nephew is Barack Obama. And his first cousin twice removes, for wife's niece's husband, first cousin once removes niece's husband, is Kevin Bacon. <laughs> if you were counting, that's a few more than six degrees of separation with Kevin Bacon, but you get the idea. AJ's point in doing all of this is partly for celebrity connection bragging rights, but it's also an attempt to bring us all together to encourage us to remember that in this deeply divided time, we are one family, including those who might seem the most unlike us. A.J. Jacobs writes this. I know that there are family feuds, but I think there's a human bias to treat your family a little better than strangers. I think if you look back at history, a lot of the terrible things that we've done to each other is because one group thinks another group is subhuman and you can't do that anymore. We're not just part of the same species, we are part of the same family, end quote. To some degree, I think we already knew that, right? Scientifically, we know that we are all distant siblings, but what does it mean to be siblings in Christ? Let's look at our Bible story for today. Today's story comes at the beginning of Mark, and already Jesus has done some miraculous things. He's healed people who were sick and paralyzed. He's done some teaching in the synagogue, and he has said some controversial things about who belongs in the kingdom of God that have made the religious authorities a little bit upset. So at this point, Jesus is gaining popularity amongst the people, and he's also gaining a bad reputation amongst the religious authorities. It's this bad reputation that gets back to Jesus's family. They've heard that people are saying that Jesus must be possessed by a demon, that he's gone out of his mind. So Jesus' mother and his brothers set out to find him. Meanwhile, Jesus is in a crowded house surrounded by people. We can imagine that there are all kinds of folks there, Jews like himself as well as Gentiles, people who are sick, who are injured, people who are rich and who are poor, women, children, sex workers, tax collectors, all kinds of folks. And the teachings that Jesus is delivering to them include this. He says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. His message to these people is one of unity and belonging and binding together as one. And it's then that Jesus' family shows up outside the door. I imagine people tapping each other on the shoulders until the message gets back to Jesus that his mother and his brothers are outside asking for him. And that's when Jesus says so that all can hear, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Your first reaction might be, wow, that's a pretty snarky thing to say to your mom and your brothers. It's kind of a sick burn, Jesus. But let's consider a little context. In Jesus' time, family structure was everything. 
the wealth of your family, their social standing, your father's profession, all these things determine the trajectory of your life. It was especially this way for women whose worth was tied to men, first her father and then her husband. Forget it if you were in any kind of abusive relationship and you wanted to get out. You could only break free if he wanted to. So to hear Jesus say that kinship has nothing to do with biology or marriage and everything to do with spirituality and belief in God's dream for a greater community, that was radical. It's still radical. Perhaps even more radical is that Jesus specifically includes women in this. He doesn't use the word father at all. By including mother and sisters in his vision for a new family, Jesus turns that traditional structure upside down and values women as equals, as full siblings. A quick note about that term siblings that I love so much. Anytime that we can choose a single word that encompasses all of us, I'm a huge fan. To say sisters and brothers all the time forces us to choose which comes first, men or women. More importantly, saying sisters and brothers all the time also excludes our non-binary and gender diverse siblings. So in other words, if Jesus could be gender inclusive, so can we. All of this to say, we are often focused on what a sting that it must have been to Jesus' mother and brothers when he says that his family includes all these strangers. But think of those strangers. What must it have felt like to be the people in the room, the blind, the injured, the sick, and to hear Jesus call them family? After all, Jesus was not blind. He was not injured or sick, and despite what the authorities were saying about him, he was not possessed or insane. Jesus was not part of most of the communities that were represented by the people in the room, communities that were largely oppressed and outcast. And yet here he was, not just in the room with them, but choosing to be an insider to their suffering and calling them family. Wendy Farley is a professor of religion at Emory University who's written several books, and in a commentary about this Bible story, she says this. If we transposed this theological vision into our own time, instead of lepers and demoniacs crowding around Jesus, we might see the bodies of the disabled. We might see soldiers with three-fourths of their bodies burned from a firefight in Iraq. We might see legless Afghan or Palestinian children. We might see a group of men reeking of cigarettes and coffee at an AA meeting. We might see a lesbian mother with a baby on her hip. We might see members of a mining community singing old-time hymns. The only ones not in the picture, Wendy Farley says, the ones not pressing in at the doors and windows, desperate and aching to be near Jesus, are the ones who think they know what religion and family life are supposed to look like, end quote. I think this story is a call, maybe especially to those of us who grew up in positive, supportive homes, to pick up our heads and look beyond our family unit and see the immensity of human need around us. Who could use some of that love and support that we have to share in abundance? Who do we currently not consider members of our family and how can we do what A.J. Jacobs set out to do, to see everyone as a sibling, and therefore to lean into that human bias to treat your family a little better than you would a stranger? 
To those who grew up in a negative, abusive, or degrading home, this story is also good news because you also belong to a family of love and grace, one where you are accepted and cherished as an equal. Either way, Jesus says, what makes us a family is doing the will of God. What I take that to mean is that every time we as a church community come together to house the homeless, feed the hungry, and work towards peace and justice for those that our society currently considers subhuman or outcast, when we are willing to throw out what we think we know about religion and family life and what they're supposed to look like, when we do that, we as a church are being a family. Jesus didn't call on us to agree on everything, which is good news. He called on us to do something. In the summer of 2017, I worked as a chaplain intern at Nationwide Children's Hospital. I think I tell a story from my time at Nationwide Children's Hospital every time I preach because it sort of felt like clergy boot camp. Maybe it was more like empathy boot camp, but in that internship, I was tasked with going inside hospital rooms where families were experiencing the worst day of their life, and I was given the seemingly impossible assignment to not do anything. I was told to embody the backwards phrase, don't just do something, stand there. In other words, I would go into hospital rooms and I would just sit. I would just make some conversation, but mostly I would listen. I was to be an insider in someone else's suffering. That summer I walked into rooms that were thick with fear, rooms where grief was palpable rooms that were full of joy and laughter, rooms that were chaotic and panicked, rooms that were bursting with tenderness and love, and rooms that were completely silent. Those were the worst rooms of all. But most days, I would sit and visit with kids who were bored and lonely. I would make conversation as we watched Disney movies together, and in those moments, I was their sibling. Some days, I would visit with parents while their children napped or received treatment. I would make conversation with them while we watched crappy daytime TV together. And in those moments, I was their sibling too. But I didn't anticipate the ways that the people that I met would become my siblings also. I remember specifically one child who had died while I was there. Days and weeks later, I told my chaplain supervisor that I was feeling this deep ache when I thought about him. Yeah, she said, that's grief. I lived at home with my parents that summer. And my sister, Virginia, and her husband and her two kids visited for a good portion of that summer, too. And so during the day, I was in these hospital rooms, and at night I was laughing around the fire pit with my whole family and reading bedtime stories to my nieces. One night after everyone had gone to bed, I laid awake in my childhood bedroom, thinking about that little boy who had died and feeling that deep ache, that grief for that child of God, that sibling of mine, and I couldn't help but cry. And that's when I heard my squeaky bedroom door open and my big sister came in and sat on my bed this time. And she wrapped her arms around me and she didn't say a word. God, it feels good when a sibling comes into your room. May we do so for one another. Amen.